This is the Drummers Resource Podcast, session 286. And the quote of the day is from Theodore Rathke, who said, What we need is more people who specialize in the impossible. You're listening to the Drummers Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's up? How are you? How you doing? You good? Good. I'm good. This is Nick Ruffini. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I hope you're doing well. And this is session 286. If this is your first time checking out the podcast, welcome to the family. If this is your 286th time checking it out, thanks for being a loyal listener, or even if it's you know, the 50th one you've listened to. You can check them all out on drummersresource.com, on iTunes, Stitcher, your favorite podcasting app, all that fun stuff. Also, we're online on the interwebs, uh, on all the social media platforms, I guess you want to call them. Uh, Instagram at Drummers Resource, Twitter at Drummers R Source, Facebook.com forward slash Drummers Resource. And if you dig the podcast, leave a review. Head over to iTunes. You can leave a quick rating or review. It takes about a minute and a half, and it helps the podcast show up higher in the search results, and I love you for that. So if you could do that, hook it up. So the interview, conversation, whatever, I never know what to call them. What are they? Are they interviews? Are they conversations? You would think after 280 some of these, I would have it figured out, but they feel me. They feel more, I can't talk, like conversations and less like interviews. So we're going to go with conversation. And the conversation that I have today is with Homer Steinweiss, and he is best known for his work with Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. He has been in that band since its inception. Unfortunately, Sharon Jones passed away this past November, and they're still trying to figure out what's going to go on with that band. But Homer's also done some work with Bruno Mars, Mark Ronson, and he specializes in vintage drums. That's what we talk about in this conversation a lot about where his specialty lies, what he's focused on, and how he's made a career doing what he does by specializing in in these things and the importance of becoming a writer and not just a hired gun. A lot of great information in here from Homer and we talk we get pretty deep into like the funk stuff and the soul and and afrobeat all the stuff that that i'm into as well so uh, a very entertaining conversation for me because that's right up my alley so we're gonna get into it with the one and only homer steinweiss homer my man thank you for doing this i appreciate it yeah my pleasure so you are uh, you you live in Brooklyn where you're in Minnesota now and what you're sitting in a car as we're doing this right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm in a, a rented Ford Fusion Hybrid, very quiet, very quiet engine. <laughs> I like it. It's very rock and roll of you. So, <laughs> yeah. So are you uh, are you travel? I mean, are you on are you on the road or are you on vacation? Uh, no, or? I was I was uh, on vacation. I went to the Boundary Waters, which is northern Minnesota Boundary Waters with Canada on a camping trip with some of my friends. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So I want to, there's the whole career that you have now and the things that you've been up to lately, but I want to build a little bit of context of how you got into playing. And I know that you, I mean, you had a, a professional career at a relatively young age, but how did you get into it? Like how old were you when you started playing and, and how did you get the, the bug to start playing? Well, I actually started playing conga drums, conga when uh, I was about 10 years old. Um, my parents were both musicians and they encouraged me to play an instrument. And uh, 
I went to a school concert of my sister, and there's a jazz band, and I really liked the sound of the conga. So I I took lessons in conga when I was like ten. Nice. And then that was cool, and I liked it. And then my my uh, my teacher like moved to Africa, and then I was like, what do I do now? Because there wasn't that many conga teachers. So my parents were like, oh, maybe you should learn regular drums. So I got like a, a teacher who just taught me on a pad. Wait, what did you say? I you started. Were, you contemplated moving to Africa? No, my, my Congo teacher moved to Africa, oh. and then uh, okay, then sorry, I misheard you. This, it's all good. Then I just got this. Uh, he recommended another teacher, and this teacher taught drum set, and so he got me a practice pad and some sticks, and then I started that when I was probably eleven, and then I was playing drums. Just I just kept taking lessons. I was like my like my my activity, you know, just drum lessons. And then when when I moved schools, I was I moved to this school called Friends Seminary in downtown Manhattan and uh there was a jazz band program and I you know since I had some experience playing drums by that point I joined the band and that's actually when I started getting really into it because some of those guys in that jazz band were guys are guys who I still work with today we had like a little combo (laughs) when we were like 12 and 13 that was actually pretty good for our age and uh and then I just kept doing that just kind of for fun I wasn't really ever super serious about doing it professionally until way later. Oh no. I I read somewhere that you were you were really into grunge and then your teacher sort of got you into some different styles of mu- music though, right? Yeah. So I was really really into Nirvana and Soundgarden, yeah, the classic grunge mm-hmm. kind of thing. I was into, you know, just anything that the radio fed me at that point as well. I was just like really um what's the word? I can't find the word, but anyway, impressionable. Um, and so I got really into that stuff. And, you know, Dave Grohl is, and what's the name of the drummer from Soundgarden? Um, um, uh, no, it's on the tip of my tongue. Man, I know his name too. Why can't Cameron, I think of Cameron uh, something? Matt Cameron. <laughs> Matt Cameron, yeah. So those two drummers are just beasts, you know, and I would bring them to my drum teacher. And he was the, this guy named Matt Petuto. is a very good teacher. I kind of like owe him a lot. And he would listen to this stuff. He wasn't too familiar with it. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, I see what he's doing. And he knew right away that this stuff was a little too complicated for me. And he was really, really into classic drumming. He's just a fan, just a drum drumming fan type guy. And so he was just like, listen, I'll teach you this stuff, but you have to learn the basics. You have to learn how to play Green Onions. You have to learn how to play every song on the Booker T and the MG's greatest hits. And I was like, okay. So then I learned all every song in the Booker T and the MG's Greatest Which is hits. great because it has like groove, it has shuffles, it has, you know, all yeah, kinds of stuff. It like has it. all the good shit. I mean, Al Jackson <laughs> is like the best drummer ever. And then he would be like, now you have to learn the James Brown groove. And like, he wasn't like some super duper into funk or anything. He was just like, he just knew that these drummers knew how to set a foundation. So if I wanted to learn how to play like, smells like Teen Spirit, I'd need to know how to play, you know, like... I don't know, like Sex Machine. I don't know. They're like basically a very similar drum beat when it comes down to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like a different way of playing. And so he taught me those things and I kind of absorbed them, played them all the time. And then it wasn't until a couple of years later when I started getting into like soul and funk music that I was like, oh, yeah, I know this beat. I know that beat. Like, this is great. Like, this is all working out. Like, right. kind of. <laughs> it's amazing how. One, like hearing things like you're saying, listening to a Nirvana beat or, or you know, 
any other groove and then you start to hear something else from that came way before that and you're like wait a minute these two things sort of are the same oh maybe that's where they got it from you know that you're like oh maybe these guys are are on to something here when they're telling me to go back a little bit and start learning the catalogs of of older you know older players and yeah exactly yeah, totally. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, I I think that we all have sort of that light bulb moment when we go back and we're like, wait a minute, you know, like this stuff was being played in the '60s and the '70s. Oh, I didn't realize that. I thought that, like, you know, I thought Snoop made that groove up or something. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. No. And the thing is about it that you know, there's not that much that really has changed. I mean, like, it's funny the things that have changed. It's like, oh, well, now the drummer might use his left hand on the hi hat. It's like somehow they didn't really think of that in the 60s, but basically everything else was there. Right. You know? Right. It was like, here's a beat, here's a backbeat. It's the same thing now. It's like you have the bass drum pattern and the backbeat and like maybe the fills and some of the, uh, you know, little licks have, have modernized. But for the most part, like all the good stuff was has always been there since mm-hmm. like, I don't know when it started, like maybe the 50s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not really sure when it when the good stuff just like that was it they got it <laughs> they figured it out so how were you learning all this stuff were you just playing along with the records or were you practicing like or were you working on feel and touch and technique or, or were you just sort of like i need to figure out just the mechanics of all this stuff of like how my hands and my feet are working together it was more playing along with the records like he like i mean this guy matt like made me like literally made me like play green onion so many times and it's just one, two, three, four on the ride cymbal, two and four on the on the snare drum, one and three on the kick drum, and two and four like maybe on the hi hat, like doing the little ch- mm-hmm. with the foot. You know, it's the most basic groove ever, but it's really, really hard to play right. You know, and so it was just like play along with the record, just keep playing along with the record until it feels really natural. I still have a hard time, honestly, with that groove. It's just like there's nothing to it. Yeah. The, and the, yeah. I mean, the mechanics are the are sort of the easy part, right? You know, exactly. like, and then you're it's, like, okay, now I got to make it feel good. Yeah, exactly. Then you just got to keep playing until it feels good. There are some things like there's actually this book. You, I'm sure you know it. It's like Clyde and Jabo wrote this book, or were had a hand in writing this book that was like 20 or so James Brown groups transcribed for drums and mm-hmm. maybe bass and guitar as well, and. uh and eventually I got that book. I think I think Matt turned me on to that book too. And there's some mechanics in there that are a little bit harder, like Funky Drummer. Um, that's one of those beats that like I still can't play right, mm-hmm. but like I, I still practice it. And it's like it, that that had, that's not just a feel thing. That's like you have to be able to play six hands really fast with your right hand. Then you have to be able to play a million different ghost notes with your left hand. And then you also have to be able to open and close a hi-hat during that and then like play a subtle controlled kick drum pattern you know mm-hmm. that's a hard groove man yeah it's like one of the hardest yeah and yeah i mean i don't know if you know but i switched from being a a righty drummer to like kind of a weird left-footed drummer no. and ever since i made that switch that was like one of the that was one of the uh really really hard grooves that i could still still don't really have together as much as i did before wait a minute we got to talk about this so you switch from playing playing kick with your right foot to playing kick with your left? Yeah. So if you watch me play, like my kick drum and my hi hat are I set up very strange. So my, my kick drum is on my left foot, my hi hat's on the right, my snare's in the middle, but then my floor tom's on the right of my hi hat, and so it's and then 
it, it's like the top of the drums looks exactly like a righty drummer. Like the to- right tom, the, the rack tom is in front of the snare, and the floor tom is to the right of the snare. But instead of the kick drum being in between those, it's the hi-hat. So I just switch where the bass drum and the hi-hat are, and then I put the cymbals in weird places. What, what prompted that? <sighs> well, about, I want to say like 2010, maybe. I don't remember exactly the year. I started really having this hard time playing what I wanted to play with my right foot. And it had been building up slowly over the years, like where my right foot would just tense up. And then I just got to the point where it just wasn't working anymore. And I didn't really know why. So I I started going to doctors and then I kind of self-diagnosed something that I thought I had. And I ended up getting confirmed by a neurologist that I had this thing called focal dystonia, which is basically like a music something that happens to people who do the same thing over and over again but it's kind of very rare it does happen to musicians so what happens is your body has a neurological basically overuse of something and it overlearns emotion and when it your brain tells it to do something like kind of a wire cross and it does something too much or the wrong direction so my foot would freeze up when i was trying to play kick drum and i just didn't know what to do and then one day I was like, I literally called every gig and every session. And I was like, listen, I don't know what's going on, but I can't really play well right now. And I think I need to stop playing. And everyone who I talked to, they were like, listen, you sound fine. I didn't even notice it. You got you to gotta do this gig. So I had like a little light bulb moment and I went and bought myself a double kick drum pedal and just went to a gig with the double kick pedal and I clamped down the hi-hat. And then I just played the gig with my left foot and never opened the hi-hat and nobody noticed. And I was like, this is working. <laughs> so then I just then I just did that for a long time. I just had this double bass drum pedal. And I remember... So you just the, weren't the, playing open hi-hat at all? Yeah, for like two years. Like I, what? <laughs> I remember I, I went to like this one session. I, during this period, I got a call from this producer to play on a Cheryl Crow record. And I was like, hells yeah, this is, a big, this is a big session for me. I was like, but you know what? Like I need to tell this guy the truth before I fly out to LA. So I called him back and I was like, listen, I really want to do the session. But uh, I just want to let you know that I won't be opening the hi-hat the whole time. <laughs> and, uh, it sounds like some weird, like, rock star, like, um, <laughs> like you know, like, separating the Skittles in the jars. And just be like, just so yeah. you know, uh, I don't play open hi-hats on records. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's mad funny. And he was just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I don't care. Like, come on. I want He's you like, to like, whatever, weirdo. Record. Get on the plate. <laughs> And I feel like people who aren't drummers don't even really understand what that means. They're like, can you do the thing? Like, oh, like, Psh. and I'm like, no, I can't do that thing. Right. <laughs> They're like, oh, okay, no worries. <laughs> you know, but it's not necessarily like, can you open the hi-hat? Like, unless you're like really obviously a, like a super, like, unless you're a producer and you understand everything about all the different elements. Like, if you're just like an artist and you're not really too into drumming, you might say, oh, can you like, you know do a little accent right here like on that symbol and then go like <laughs> like right. i can't do that one <laughs> <laughs> and they're like oh fine no worries so you go so you go and play on the cheryl crow record no open hi-hat but at some point you gotta like you're figuring all right i gotta start opening the hi-hat right yeah well you know honestly i'm not so into open hi-hat it's not really my <laughs> thing so I wasn't too worried about that for a long time. But then eventually I was just like, I was more just sick of the double bass drum pedal. I was like, I hate this thing. <laughs> so dumb. I'm like right. carrying it around to every gig and I'm only using like one, I'm not even using it for the right purpose. Mm-hmm. So then I, I did do this. I set up my drums the other way and I started experimenting. And then I still kept the hi-hat closed when I did that. 
And then eventually I started to learn how to open the hi hat, which learning to play the kick drum with your left foot easier than you think. Really? Learning to open the hi hat with your right foot impossible. <laughs> like literally, <laughs> like just like I'm just like okay. Sometimes it does it. Sometimes it does it. I'm like go open because <laughs> you're it. still hitting the hi hat with your right hand. Yeah, exactly. It's and then trying to open right. it with the right foot, and yeah, I can yeah. see how that could be super confusing. Yeah, it's a little definitely confusing. Holy shit, this is blowing my mind. So, so now, so then you start experimenting with it, and what man, what is that like? Because you're sort of like trying to reteach yourself how to play, right? Yeah, I mean, honestly, you'd be surprised how quickly you'd pick up on doing all these things. Like that's like kind of what a being a drummer is about, like being able to use all your limbs independently. So it's like you've trained yourself to open the hi-hat with your right foot and play the bass drum with your left foot. But you've tra also trained yourself to play like this thing with your right hand and this thing with your left hand. But you should be able to play the same things with your switch hands, you know, if you're a really right. great drummer. So it's kind of like... Which I am not. If so. you... <laughs> yeah. And I don't think of myself as like super technically able, but I was surprised that I was just... I just like I literally didn't practice once. I brought a double kick drum pedal to a gig like a Sharon Jones and Dab Kings gig and I just played it and it just worked, you know? That's so crazy. It's kind of like out of necessity. That's nuts, man. So I want, I want to talk about um, your, your career, sort of how you went. I mean, we're bouncing around a little bit and that's okay. So I know that when you went to college, you were already playing professionally, right? You were already sort of, sort of on yeah. the map and, and working with a lot of people. I want to talk about the progression of, of your career and because I think it's good for the audience to hear, because there's a wide range of people who listen to the podcast, of how that how that career progressed, and then also how you got it. Because you do a bunch of different things. You, I know that you tour, you played with Sharon Jones, and you do some writing, and you're in the studio, and all these other things. So I'd love to hear the progression of that. Sure. So, um, I mean, it all really just started from being like really obsessed with like, like certain types of music like just me and my friends growing up like once i got the bug for like funk and soul music like I, we just didn't stop mm -hmm. and when i went you know like first we were listening to parliament funkadelic and you know the kind of the classics like stevie wonder and just you know all the good stuff and then somehow a friend of mine got hip to like these funk 45s these rare records and by the time mm -hmm. we were like 15 we were all obsessed with rare records like rare funk records and just being obsessed with that stuff, like, just led us to like, let's let's make a band, let's do this, let's do this specific style, and and we started like a band, like a high school band. It's called the Mighty Imperials, and it was an organ band that was like trying to sound like the Meters, because we were obsessed with the Meters, and it was just like, honestly, at the time, it was just something for fun, like that. We just, it was like, you know, just another thing to do with your friends, and then there was just some coincidence where we kind of got, there was this label starting called Desco Records that uh, was doing this soul funk kind of stuff. And we sent them a demo and they liked it and they, you know, put out a 45 with Mighty Imperials. And then they sent, when we were like 15, they sent us to England to play a couple of gigs. And so all of a sudden we were like 15 and 16 years old and we're playing on stage. We're getting flown to London to play a gig for like this niche, weird funk and soul collecting audience in England. Nice. And, and so it was cool. I wasn't like, Oh, I'm on a professional, I'm a professional musician now. It was just right. like, I'm doing this gig and it's fun. And then I was like the whole band, the whole, the four of us, the mighty periods, we we're all really into music, but none of us were 
sure that's what we want to do. So I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I just went to college and studied philosophy. And around that time, the there was a band called Jim Jones and the Soul Providers. It's kind of complicated, but what happened was that band broke up, and the drummer of that band and the bass player of that band had a feud. The drummer was like, you know, he went off and did his own thing, and the bass player started Daptone Records, Gabe Roth. Mm-hmm. He started Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. And because I was like another guy in the scene on this label, he and he liked my drumming. He was like, hey, you want to you know be the drummer for Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings? And I was like, yeah, of course. I was like a huge fan of Sharon Jones and the Soul Providers. And it was just like a continuation in a way. Right. And so I, I joined the band and we were basically recorded like a record in the basement of this this guy's house. That was like the original Daptone Studios. And I mean, I was pretty shit drummer at that point. Like Gabe <laughs> had to edit all the, all like he said, he had to edit like so many takes. And he was also recording on tape. So he was cutting tape wow. together to get like good drum take of and what year is this this was like 99 i think 99. 2000 yeah around the, i don't know exactly the year it was like probably 2000 because i i remember i recorded the record while it was like my first year of college and it was like during a break or something and i went to college in 2000 2001 my first year was like fall of 2000 so uh yeah and so we did that and then there were some gigs that then all of a sudden we're playing sharon jones Sober Rides were playing at you know a gig in the city, and I come down and play it. And then there was a there's a residency in Barcelona for a month that summer. That was super fun, and that kind of gave me a little bug for it. And then I was like, you know, I'm in this pretty cool band, this cool soul band, but I'm still going to just like go to college and figure out what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So I just kept doing college, and and I gradu I I didn't quite graduate at the time. I ended up graduating, but I you know I finished most of my studies and I moved back home because I was up at Purchase which is an hour north of New York or even less and then I uh, when I got back I was like looking for what to do I was like waiting tables playing a couple gigs and you know Gabe wanted to put the thing on the road more and more and it was like the pay was better than you know even though it was maybe a hundred bucks a gig going on tour for three weeks was more than I was making doing anything else Mm -hmm. and so I just kind of found myself in in this in this career of drumming, but I wasn't. I still wasn't like, oh, this is what I want to do. I'm 100% going to be a musician, going to be a drummer. I was just like, I'm in this band that I really like, and it's really fun, and I'll keep doing it and see what else comes my way. Were you just opposed kept... to trying to just play professionally and that's it, or were were did you just have other stuff that you wanted to do? I was slightly opposed to it because I just felt like it was just. I was just going to limit myself if I was just going to be a drummer I just and a touring musician. I just wasn't sure that I I could hack it. You know, like I knew I could hack it as a Dap King, but I, I didn't know if I was going to be like, I, you know, if I could do anything else. It was just such a specific style that I did. You know, right. I wasn't about to get the call to do like this other gig or that gig. It was just like I play, you know, vintage soul drums. You need that? Give me a call. Right. And, uh, and, so I honestly, I, I de- definitely had a lot of conflict about it. And I even like started subbing out at an early age where I was like, yeah, I don't know if I want to do this. And you try some other things and you know, I missed some tours and had I, over the years of the Dap Kings, I've like worked with some really great drummers who have subbed for me to, to you know, to allow me to do other things. And, you know, to kind of just, it was always like, I was always like for a while I had one foot out the door, you know, and then 
you know, then I just kept, I kept doing music and, you know, I had done a fair amount of recording at that, that point too. I had done some home recording. I had done recording with the Dab Kings. I had done recording with the Mighty Imperials and I was always passionate about that. And then it just kind of, it just, at a point I was just like, man, I'm pretty, I'm doing pretty good with this music thing. I should just go, I should just, I shouldn't try anything else anymore. Right. So then I just kind of decided like, I'm going to try and like, you know, record more music, do side projects. It was all kind of, it wasn't all super like, I'm going to do this now. It just kind of all started happening at the same time. And I just kind of went with the flow. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And were you worried, you know, that sort of the, the maybe the gigs would dry up? Because like you said, you're super niche and then you're just not going to get the calls for the John Mayer gig or this gig or that gig. And then you're going to be like, exactly. oh, what am I going to do now? Yeah. Which is understandable. Exactly. You know, I yeah. think that, uh, I think that, and plus, we all have this thing of, you know, this imposter syndrome of not thinking we're good enough for anything. And, you know, I think that I think we all have that from time to time. Yeah, that plays into it. And I also I think I felt like somehow like not like like I couldn't be a professional drummer because like I wasn't like I w- like not to say this in like a negative way because I love drumming, but I wasn't super into drumming. Like I wasn't like. Like, like if, if I talked to my drumming friends, like I wouldn't like be able to do all like the, the fills around the drum set. Like I didn't have any chops. Mm-hmm. I could just play beats, you know? Right. And I just felt like, and, and for some reason I could never really build up those chops. I still really don't really have chops, but I just have like, you know, I have like grooves in my pocket now that, that are, that are my grooves, you know? Right. And so that's like my, my thing. But I think I just like, I just always felt like, uh, like I'm, I'm never gonna be that like just a drummer, drummer, and you know, you know, I'm not really. I'm like a drummer, but I'm more of like a drummer, producer, writer. Like I do it all, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not just like a straightforward like session guy or straightforward touring guy, right? You know, which is hard. I mean, kudos for figuring that out because I think a lot of people struggle with you know touring, being in a band, doing sessions, all of that stuff. It's hard to, it's hard to juggle all those balls at the same time and and make it work but you've you've done that really well um thank you thank and, you i appreciate that and how so talk about because i know that like you, all the stuff that you've done with sharon jones i well, first of all let me just tell you that i'm a huge sharon jones and dap kings fan have been for oh, years thank you. like all the records i mean like i've I've so years ago um, I was in basically sort of the same band as you like an, an organ soul band um, so we listened to you know it was a heavy diet of Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings and Dr. Lonnie Smith and Jimmy Smith and like all those funk 45s all, like all that stuff so I when you're saying right on, all, right when on. you're talking about all this you're 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 speaking my language and you're speaking my heart so um, and so for you to be on here, I, I love the fact that that we can we can talk about this kind of music and and really dive into it. Um, but the the other stuff that you've done outside of let's call it like that the funk soul realm, um, you've done all of this work with all these great artists and you've written tunes and all that. Like how did that stuff? I know you've worked with like Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars and 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 you know Cheryl you said you went and recorded a record with Cheryl Crow how does how does that stuff start happening um yeah so uh with the Dap Kings around the time it all really started because pretty much because of Mark Ronson I want to say because we were doing the Dap Kings thing and people were starting to hear about us you know around this around naturally came out the second record and 
you know, we were getting a little reputation for doing something different and doing our own thing. And Mark Ronson had worked with some of the horn players in our band. He grew up with Dave Guy, who's a trumpet player for the Dab Kings. He knew Dave, and he he got the Dab Kings horn section to play on some Robbie Williams record. And then Mark got the call to produce this, you know, young singer, Amy Winehouse. And he was like, oh, man, I want like a real soul band to play on this record. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, I should try these guys, the Dab Kings. I heard their record. It sounds like old soul music. It's going to be perfect, you know? So he put when that I, together. When I first heard those records, I was like, there's no way that these records were recorded in like 2005, 2007, 2010. Like it was just... The Dab Kings records? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's because it gave and that's because of all of us. But really, you know, the, as a producer, gave really was a, is such a purist and he loved that old music and he just you know he he went to he goes to he goes the the, the real authentic way you know mm-hmm. it's like every everything every part of the process is is informed by a different different by a different process than it is now right and so if you do that you get a product that really does sound like when was when the fuck was this made <laughs> right. <laughs> but so Mark hired the Dap Kings to play on Amy Winehouse's record and that was kind of the beginning of like session musician world for me because like playing on that record was first of all amazing like I mean Amy wasn't really there for most of it mm-hmm. she came in to cut Valerie which ended up on Mark's solo record but the rest of it was basically like Mark had demos he played us a demo we listened to it a couple times we had some tra- charts. We played them, and you know, did the next song. No mm-hmm. one knew who Amy Winehouse was, or if this music was ever going to be heard by anybody. And you know, we didn't get paid too much to do it, but it just felt like I remember in the sessions, like, oh, this this stuff sounds pretty good. I like it, you know. Right. And 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 I felt pretty good about like my performance and the whole thing. And then and then Mark had a blast. He was just like, wow, this is amazing because he's he'd been making records using. His, you know, his DJ equipment and basically like NPCs and all that shit and looping up drums. And he was like, now I can actually tell the drummer what to play. He was so stoked to have a drummer and a band that could play like old records. Mm -hmm. He was always sampling old records. So then there was just a string of stuff that came from him after that. He was just like, oh man, I got the guys. Um, The hell is going on here? Sorry. My car is freaking out. Um, So he, uh, yeah, so he, he started hiring us to play on all these random records. Like we did like a remix for Lily Allen and we did some artists, candy pain that you probably haven't heard of. And we did like, uh, this old Daniel Mary mother record. And we did all these records for him. We started at Daptone and, and like, that was kind of just like the big, and then through that is just, that's, that's, you know, once you make records with people, people start talking and like, you know, it's like, Mark might be making a record for Bruno Mars and Bruno wants the sound that he got back to black. So he hired, you know, me to play drums and Nick to play bass mm-hmm. and Victor to play keyboards. And then I worked with Bruno and then Bruno really liked working with me. So Bruno called me up to work on his next record, even without Mark, you know? Right. So it's like, it's just, it's just like once you start that path, if, if you're, if, if you're good and, and, and people like what you do and, and you're like, you know, you, you just, you gotta, you know, take advantage of it and try and, you know, get the work where you can. Correct me if I'm wrong though, but you were starting as a session guy, but then you slid into sort of writing the tunes with, with like Bruno and Mark, right? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I have like a whole thing that I tell drummers and all young musicians coming up. It's like, 
if you're going to play on a record, if you're going to play in a band, like you really have to like think about your role as a writer mm-hmm. and like there, there's a huge, there's like, I have this argument with my friends all the time because it's like, Oh, the song is the chords and the song is the melody. And then, you know, you're, you're just an arrangement factor. I'm like, well then fine, go find another drummer to make the arrangements super badass So people listen to your record. And at the end of the day, yeah. it's like, at the end of the day, it's like, I don't care, you know, if I wrote a chord or if I wrote a melody, like, I understand that, like, th- like the, the monetary side of this business is like, there, there's a great advantage to writing the music. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like if you don't write the music, like, how do you eat, you know? Right. It's like, it's like, look at like Clyde Stubblefield, like these guys, I, I don't, and rest in peace, Clyde, but like, you know, <clears throat> those guys... I really feel like they were, they should be millionaires for the amount of times their drums were used in, yeah. you know, or, you know, like should be like, you know, it's just like the type of thing where I think like, if I'm going to play on a record, I'm down to do it for either really good session money or, or some writing credit or some combination of the both, you know, mm-hmm. but, but like, if you're not will- really willing to consider the groove as part of the song, especially when the groove is so prominent, and like I'm not necessarily willing to to put my groove on your record, you know. Right. And that's fine with me. And so writing with Mark and Bruno and writing with all these different people, it's 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 always like a push and pull. Like sometimes like you'll go in the studio and there'll be a full budget and they'll be like, Here's the song and you play your part and they're like, You killed it, great and I don't expect any writing. But sometimes they're like, Oh, can you come up with something here or we or we want you to like play like a groove make up a groove and then we'll build a song around it. And then mm-hmm. I'll be like, yo, I feel like you should break me down for that. And they're usually like, sure, you know, right. if they're cool. Right. And I usually try, and I, I, at this point I try and be like really upfront with people like, Hey, you know, if I come up with something in the studio, I expect a little bit of writing credit or, or, you know, I just try and be really clear. Cause I don't really want to have that argument like a year later where it's like, Hey, I, sh- I deserve 2% of that track and you gave me nothing or something, right. you know? Right. So, I mean, you're now at this point, like when you're working on these tunes, you're in the studio with Mark or you're in the studio with Bruno or, or whatever, because I know a lot of times, you know, you'll just get a track, not you, but people will just get a track, they'll record it at home and then send it back to the producer or something like that. Yeah. I don't do a lot of that mobile recording stuff. Mm -hmm. I've done some of it, but it usually doesn't work that well because I don't know, for whatever reason, it's like, I just feel like I always, I, I feel like this, like, you know, there's this modern thing of making music on your, you know, on your computer and sending tracks back and forth. And it works really great for like making like big pop productions that are, you know, in Ableton or Logic or Pro Tools, whatever that are based on the grid and there's all these things. But when you're doing something that really is like my style of drumming is all about like a performance. It's like, it's hard to like produce a drummer performance you know from across the country you're just like right. uh, send them like performance they're like oh that's cool i'll chop it up and figure something out with it as opposed to like sitting there and being like that's cool let's drop the hi-hat on the second beat and then let's try it again mm-hmm. it's like let's get another take you know that's when the that's when the shit really goes down for me at least more with homer but first a quick word from our sponsors 
This session is brought to you by my good friends at DW Drums right there in Oxnard, California. They've been in California. They started in Los Angeles in the 70s, and now they're in beautiful Oxnard. If you're in LA, do yourself a favor. Drive an hour north. Go to the factory. Watch them make some handcrafted drums right here in the United States. You can learn more about them, their great products, and everything about their company history by going to dwdrums.com. Hey, did you know that whether you're a full-time or a part-time musician, you can write off expenses that you have for drumming, sticks, heads, gas, tolls, all of that sort of stuff. Now, there's two options. You can track all those expenses by collecting all of your receipts in a shoebox and sifting through them at the end of the year, or you can get FreshBooks. FreshBooks is a great way for you to track your expenses. You can do it on the go right from your phone, and you can also use it for tracking time, billing clients, and creating invoices in less than 30 seconds. The best part, you can try it for free today by going to freshbooks.com forward slash drummer, and be sure to enter drummer's resource in the how did you hear about us section. Start your free trial today with no credit card by going to freshbooks.com forward slash drummer. Now, you've heard me talk about Musicians Institute, and they are the official education partner of Drummer's Resource. But did you know that you can customize your learning experience? You can dig deeper into specialized area of focus with electives like gospel drumming, New Orleans drumming, electronic drumming, transcribing, hand drums, cajon, even Ableton Live. And these electives are taught with passion by the expert facility at the drum program at Musicians Institute. You can learn all about MI and their great programs by going to MI. Dot edu Musicians Institute Instrumental in Life Now more with Homer Steinweiss So we were talking about the difference between a writer a performer doing you know getting paid by the session and so let, I want to unpack that a little bit just so that sort of the audience gets the idea of what we're talking about here so if you get hired to play on a record you're either going to get paid for the session you're going to get scale or whatever it is and it'll be you know anywhere from 300 to what seven eight hundred bucks a session or you get writing credit and then you get royalties yeah so exactly that's a big difference and you do get some royalties (laughs) as a session musician don't get me wrong like especially in this day and age they're starting to really correct it like in europe they have that Mm -hmm. and in america they're getting it so if you play on a really big record like you will see a check in the mail like once a year for how many records they sold and how many times it was played and all that stuff. But the royalties as a writer is like a totally different level. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you play, if you get 5% of a hit song, like, you know, you're kind of golden. Right. <laughs> and yeah, it's just a different type of income stream. And it, it's rough. Like this is, I mean, this is what I'm talking, what I was talking about before when I was like, I don't know if I could just be a drummer I feel like if you decide, I'm just going to be a drummer, a touring drummer, a session drummer, just going to go for session rates, there's not enough gigs in this business to just be a session drummer, unless you're in Nashville and you're working every day to pay your bills. But mm-hmm. if you're like getting a little writing credit, then you get a little royalties in the mail, and then that supplements your session income, and then it all kind of works together and makes something work. Right. You know? I think it takes, I think it takes a little bit of courage to actually admit that you know to say look i'm not i'm not willing to just to play for for just the love of it because i need money to survive and i think that there's a lot of people who are okay with they're like i'll live in a one-bedroom apartment and not have any 
anything and not have a car and and you know barely pay my rent as long as I'm paying playing music all the time and then there's other people who are like you know I sort of want a house and maybe even like a vacation home and you know like yeah. I, I think that's okay either way yeah I yeah if you want to do it and like just do it for the love of music I think that's totally fine it's just I guess for me like you know I I made a decision like like just like I, I want to like if I'm going to be you know working in the business I want to be making money you know mm-hmm. and it's uh I don't know it's like obviously it doesn't always work out and you sometimes you get screwed sometimes you don't make any money but it's just like I think you have to understand I really think it's important to not undervalue what you're doing right like and I've like learned that like it's like if you play on a, a, a record and you get, let's say someone's like, hey, I'll give you 350 bucks to come in for the day and play on my record. And then you hear yourself on the radio for like five years everywhere you go. It doesn't feel like you're worth 350 bucks for that day. You know, right, right. it feels like you should get paid a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And and I think that you just have to be aware that some like you never know what's going to happen. You never know if the thing that you recorded in your friend's bedroom is going to be an international hit, you know, and you got to kind of like be prepared. Like sometimes I do sessions for completely nothing, for no writing credit, for no for no money. If I feel like I really love the music and I really want to and I love the artist and I just for the love of it, you know, mm-hmm. but for the most part, it's like, you know, if, if it's just a, if it's a business transaction, it's like, Hey, I really want you to play on my record. I don't really know who you are or whatever. It's like, we're not friends. There's nothing like, you know, I'm just like, okay, this is, you know, this is what it costs. And you have to kind of establish the value for, for yourself that works for you. Mm-hmm. That's a hard thing to do. And I feel like it's always changing. Sometimes people hit me up and they'll be like, Hey, how much do you cost for a day in the studio? I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> What's the project? <laughs> right. Right. It depends you know? who it's for and what it's for and all that. Yeah. It's kind of where exactly. Yeah. Sure. So what are, what are some of the, um, some of the big hits that you have writing credit on? Uh, not a lot. Honestly, I don't, a lot of the stuff that I've played on that I have writing credit on, none of them have been like huge hits. It's more just like a little bit here, a little bit there. Mm-hmm. Like there's, like there's a song on the Bruno Mars. I only played on one song on the latest Bruno's Bruno Mars record called Perm. Mm-hmm. I have a little credit on that, um, but it wasn't a or it hasn't been a radio single yet. Maybe cross fingers, maybe it will be. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a song off Mark Ronson's record called Bang Bang Bang. Um, that was like a minor hit in mm-hmm. Australia, I think. And yeah, it gets played, and I had some credit on that. And uh, you know, and then there's. There's songs that, like, you know, there's Sharon Jones and Dap King song that I didn't just play on and get a little piece of that. I actually wrote all the music and the lyrics. And I do that as well, you know. It's not just that, like, I'm like, oh, I want 5% if I play, if I came up with a drum part. It's like, sometimes I'm like, hey, here's some chords, here's some lyrics, and then I get more percent, you know. Ah, nice, nice. I didn't, um, I didn't realize but, that you were writing lyrics for the Dap Kings, too. Yeah, I've written some songs like over the years. Like I've in the past couple albums, I always have like a song or two per album um, that I actually wrote the lyrics and the the chords and all that. And so, are you a multi instrumentalist or do you? Yeah, I play a little bit of everything. I'm not like I I wouldn't go into a a session and play guitar or bass as like a as like a guy, but I can play everything a little bit just to write and, and all that. Right. Right. So how, and I mean, this is a, this is a tough thing to talk about, but how, how have things changed now that, that Sharon has passed away? Um, 
you know, I mean, it's really just like losing a close friend. It's like super sad. I miss Sharon a lot. But for me personally, like I've been doing so many other, like, you know, the Dap Kings has been a big part of my life for the past 20 years. But I've always had, you know, a, other projects going on. So it's kind of like for me, it's like it's the biggest change is just really missing like playing playing with Sharon and being around her and, mm-hmm. and having that band like as always something that, you know, I can fall back on or just always like it's almost like home. But like right. last year, the band was on tour and I wasn't really touring with them that much because I was at home doing other stuff. So mm-hmm. in terms of like professionally, like I, I've always like had my foot in a lot of different places, I right. guess. Who was something for you, Eric Cal? Uh, that Eric Calp subbed for me for many years, but then it was Brian Wolf for the past four or five years, I think now. Oh, okay. So what, I mean, what's, what is she like? What was she like on stage? I mean, like just seeing it from seeing live, I mean, it was amazing, but like, I, I just, I can't imagine what it's like playing with her. It's amazing. Honestly, she's like, she's such a rhythmic, uh, musician and so, like, like it's it's like it's it was such a great way for me to learn how to play the drums like playing behind her for many years like on tour like that's when i actually became a decent drummer like before then i was okay i could like hold down a groove and like it was good it was okay but then like with sharon she would just be stomping her feet and you have to follow that and it'd be too slow and you have to make sure it's fast or it's too fast and slow it down or it's not funky enough or it's not swingy enough and she'd always be yelling at you for those things and they just teach you and then and but then beyond that once you get past that and you actually just sit in the pocket with her and your pocket is kind of like following her pocket and then it all comes together it's just a beautiful thing mm. so it's always really wonderful to just kind of get behind that when it's right there when everything is coming together it's like you can't really beat that <laughs> it's amazing the things that you learn on stage with people and maybe it's not them specifically turning around and saying hey do this or you know don't play this or play that but it's sort of you just intuitively learn it you know and they'll just like you said stomp their feet or they'll move a certain way and you're like oh maybe hmm let me try this thing or let me let me adjust this way or adjust that way and then over the course of 5 10 15 years you're like man i really learned a lot just from sort of paying attention yeah. and and playing and just and and engaging with these people you know totally totally 100 percent. and you know it's like like with sharon she came from church you know that was mm-hmm. like her that's where she learned music and church drumming is like it's such an interesting it's so like it's so different from like all other drumming you know it's like kind of just amorphous in terms of like where the tempo is and just speeds up when it feels like it and just has this crazy swing and sharon always wanted that in the drums you know she'd always like kind of like you you know she liked when i played drums for sure but then she'd be like yo this is some real church drumming now (laughs) you know and it would just kind of be like oh that's how it's done you know right because i never yeah because it's just like and and you're just constantly trying to yeah like you say like over the course of 15 years you learn a lot more than you realize just by all those little kind of following someone's lead mm-hmm. are there plans to continue doing stuff with the dap king still um yeah i mean it's hard to say right now we're kind of in a transition period but yeah we're still getting together you know figuring stuff out i, I, I don't really i don't really know what the future holds for the dap kings but i hope that you know we still you know the dap kings is a cool band and yeah i think we'll still do some stuff together for sure well 
I've always I've always enjoyed it. So even thank you. even if you don't put out any more records, thank you for the the ones that you've already put out. Um, so speaking of of things in on the horizon, what what do you have uh, that's sort of coming down the pipe? Some exciting stuff that you're working on, or are you you know do you have what are your next plans? Um, the most exciting thing for me personally, I mean, there's a lot of different cool stuff I've been working on over the past couple of years, but. I'm really currently really involved in this Greek artist named Monica. Um, I produced her last record, um, very random kind of meeting. And I made this like weird Greek disco pop record nice. uh, called Secret Secret in the Dark. That was about in 2012, I believe. And we just got together recently and started writing and getting pre-production for the new record. So I've been going out to Athens and working with her on some pre-production and I think it's going to be a really cool record. So I'm just like pumped to actually, I know, like I know whatever it's all supposed to sound like. I'm just pumped to get in the studio and like make it, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we have a lot of like flushed out demos and ready to go. And I just want to get in there. And yeah, you know, other than that, there's a new Charles Bradley record on the horizon, hopefully a new Menahan Street Band record, new Lee Fields record. So that will be really cool too, you know. Are you, you're playing on the Lee Fields record? Yeah. Um, over the years, the Lee Fields and the Expressions and that whole camp—that's the same. That's the same guys I grew up with. The same guys that I went to in that high school, grade school jazz band. Oh wow! Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, so Leon Michaels, who has the L. Michaels affair, mm-hmm. and uh, he runs that label, Big Crown, which used to be Truth and Soul. I so, went didn't, to, wasn't there a wasn't there a a Wu Tang like collaboration? What was yeah, there was. Yeah, that was it. Just a remix, or did they did they work on it together? So what happened was, do you, uh, you remember Serious Radio? Does that still yeah. exist? Serious Radio? Uh, um, I don't know if it still exists or serious. not. <laughs> yeah, um, I think they might have merged with XM or something. Whatever. Serious Radio put together like a a thing. It was like you know like promotional thing. Like let's have hip hop artists work with live bands. So they connected Raekwon and L. Michaels Affair for some radio performance. And we did a gig with Raycon. It was really fun. And Leon got kind of inspired, like just like just from learning the Raekwon songs. Like we should just make a record of covers of Wu Tang songs. So there was some more collaborations. We played some more shows with like some members of Wu Tang. We even did like a radio show that was like we did a couple of shows that were like pretty much like the whole Wu Tang clan, but. Those didn't like go so well. It was a little chaotic. <laughs> but then, but then, Leon, um, Leon uh, decided like, you know, let's make a record of instrumental versions, like basically covers of these hip hop songs, which is kind of a cool abstract concept if you think about it, because the hip hop songs are sampling old soul songs. Right. We're we're really into old soul music, so it's kind of like replaying old soul songs in a different, in a looping way, and then like making them live again. You know. Mm-hmm. And then taking the loop out of it and making it a performance again. So it was kind of a cool concept. And uh, yeah, he did one and then yeah, he's done a second one. I don't play across the board and all that stuff. But my friend Nick Moshin, who's a, who's a bass player who plays on all these records with me, you know, played in the Amy Winehouse stuff. He's, he's a great, great musician. He's also a wonderful drummer. And I often get credit for a lot of the stuff he does because we play like maybe a Lee Fields record will be 50% me drumming and 50% him drumming. Mm-hmm. And he'll come up with all these amazing drum parts and people are like, Oh, I love the drum part on, you know, this song by Lee Fields. And I'm just like, thanks man. I'll take it. <laughs> Even though I didn't play it, but it's like too hard to explain. Right. It wasn't me. It was a player. <laughs> God damn it. 
You're like, yeah, I did play really well on that track, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling that drum beat. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, I, I guess I didn't realize that there was sort of all of this, uh, like there's this big network of, of you guys that are all working together on all of these different labels. And so, so yeah. I mean, how many labels are there that are sort of all working together? You have Daptone Records. Yeah, it's basically right now it's Daptone and, and Big Crown Records, but the whole thing is like, I call it the Brooklyn soul scene, and it's like a big family. And it's like, there's been Desco Records, there's been Truth and Soul Records, there's been a lot of other random things that have like sprung out of it. You know, there's Antibalas, which has been on Daptone, but also has been on other labels. And it's just kind of like this big community of, of dudes who like all are into, you know, old school soul music and Afrobeat and, you know. How did like I not get connected with you guys when I lived in New York? I'm so mad. <laughs> you missed you missed the boat, man. Man, now I'm in, now I'm in Livermore, California. And I don't know. Where are you? I'm in Livermore. So I, I'm like in the East Bay area. So I'm outside of San Francisco. So nice. At least David Garibaldi lives right down the street from me, so that's cool. Oh shit! No way. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty awesome. cool. Yeah. But I'm that's I'm like awesome. looking at all, and I'm like, man, I I totally would have like tried to get yeah, you involved fit, with you. You would have fit right in. Uh, <laughs> well, if you need a if you need a drummer for something, call me. I'll I'll play some old Good. soul stuff. <laughs> Good to know, man. Good to know. I'll, I'll play it really poorly, or you can get someone else to play it, and then we can just tell everyone that that it was me on the. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. So, the what's the uh, what's the best way for people to follow along to connect with you to keep an eye on the stuff that you have going on? Is it through your website? Is it on social? Um, it's a good question. I don't know. I don't know how people figure out what I do. I try. I, I kind of try to keep a low profile. Um, I like to check up on my. Uh, all music credits page every once in a while to see like if they're accurate because that usually lists all the shit I'm working on so if you're really if you want to become a Homer super fan you figure out all the stuff I've played on that's the best place <laughs> but other than that I, I don't know I got I really you know I got a little freaked out with Instagram and Facebook just because it was like kind of like there's just all consuming mm -hmm. and I just couldn't keep it going so I just stopped using them right. and then you know my website I made in like 2003 and like haven't updated it since. It's kind of a funny website. People <laughs> it is. I've like, been there a few times trying yeah, to figure out like it's pretty, it's how pretty to funny what the fuck. Yeah. So homersteinwest.com is always a good resource. But yeah, I don't know. If you want to, if you if you want to follow up on me, like. I don't know what to do. I don't have a solution. <laughs> well, because I think that people would love to see you live, and you know check out the stuff that you're working on so yeah I don't know. maybe i should uh like start a little like well maybe i, I will I'll update my website with like a um something i'm, yeah, I'm gonna put, use this podcast. just dates yeah, or something yeah i can you know i don't play a lot of live gigs no it's funny like i i you know when i was touring obviously i would go on the road and you know i played with this band the arcs last year a bunch and played some gigs with them but right now now the dap kings are not really playing gigs and and you know all these other bands i play and there's a lot of studio stuff i, I haven't i haven't i played one gig this year wow well yeah hey, what, i mean it's it's working for you you don't necessarily always have to play gigs right yeah yeah i guess so but yeah it would be nice to have like a way for people to connect and you know if i'm playing a gig i should I should blast it out there somehow. We'll, we'll have a. I'll, I'll, I'll start a call-in show, and you can call in <laughs> once a week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey guys, I'm playing around the corner. 
I like it. Well, cool, man. I again, I appreciate uh, all the all the music that you put out there. This is this is right up my alley. All of this old, this soul, this all, the funk stuff, the the Afrobeats of it's all right in my wheelhouse. So I really dig the Thank fact you. that that you came on to to talk about it. I appreciate all the the stuff that you've been putting out there in the world. And uh, I I would say I can't wait to see what you do next, but I probably won't know about it because you know, <laughs> your website's not up to date. I'll update it. That's I had to get that zing goal. in there. So <laughs> it's a good one. But uh, but Homer, well, I do I yeah, do appreciate I it. I really fun, do. Man. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, man. It's really cool. It's an honor to be a part of something that all these other great drummers. Of course, man. Anytime, anytime you want to come back, we can we can chat more. Cool, man. Good deal. Thanks again. All right. All right. Cool. Take care. You've been listening to Homer Steinweiss. I hope you dug that. And for links to everything we talk about, you know that there's always show notes for every podcast. So you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 286. Also, be sure to follow Drummers Resource on Instagram at Drummers Resource, on Facebook at Drummers Resource, and on Twitter at Drummers R Source. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. You know I appreciate it. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.